Let me begin with an account from around 160 AD about a bishop from Smyrna called Polycarp. In the early years, yeah, Polycarp's his name. You're laughing. I guess he got made fun of at school, I guess. Um, Polycarp's a good name because um, I don't know what it means. It sounds like many fish, but anyway. Uh, wasn't how I was going to start my sermon, but thank you, Kat, for that humorous uh, aside. Um, it's actually quite a serious instruction uh, explanation because it talks about his martyrdom by the Roman Empire, as I said, around 160 AD. And this is the story, the account that's given by someone who was an observer. I think there are some poetic elements to it, but the truth is still uh, there. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, this is the place where they executed um, Christians and others, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man, meaning be strong. No one, who saw, no one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked, asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Now, interestingly, Christians were considered atheists because they believed in one God. So I think it was, you know, it was a multiplicity of gods back then, or the, think of all the different Roman gods and things. So um, when a Christian, if a Christian was to recount, recant their faith, to deny their faith, they would say, away with the atheists, meaning away with the Christians. So this is what the, the Roman proconsul is telling him to say, a declaration in front of all the public that he's no longer a believer uh, and is prepared to accept the multiplicity of gods. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Probably not what the proconsul expected. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp's answer was this. 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I'll be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I'll have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. It was all done in the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths. But when, each, but when they went to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him, like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock for sacrifice. Ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God, he looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. 
sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you with him through the Holy Spirit be glory both now and forever. Amen. And then it recounts how he was burnt to death. They then took his bones um, after, he was, after he died and burnt them again. The attempt was, because Christians believed in the resurrection of the body after their death, um, they thought that'd be a way to mock their desire for resurrection. I read this story many years ago, early in my Christian life, and I was struck by his confidence. And then I read more about the early martyrs, which um, at one point, the, some of the Roman governors said to the Christians, can you stop coming to me? I'm sick of executing you. Go and throw yourself off cliffs if you want to be martyred for the sake of this Jesus person you follow. People saw it as an honour to be martyred for Jesus. But the words of Polycarp, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? Someone comes, becomes like that, and this was early in Christian history, with that vibrant confidence in Christ as they stand facing death, because they've worked out in their daily walk what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because you don't have that kind of capacity. Now, certainly he was a, he was a bishop, he was a leader amongst the, the church people at the time, uh, a mature Christian. We certainly read about him in that context. And I guess something about you, when I read that, I hope I'd have that courage. Um, in some parts of the world today, of course, that is actually the cost of following Jesus. So we, while we might talk about today, as I will, about what it means to be a follower of Christ, um, it's unlikely that we will face those kind of life and death choices for Jesus. Um, that's the extreme, I guess. So I want to give that picture to you as one end of what Jesus is saying when he says, take up your cross and follow him. And as we look today at the cost of um, following Jesus and taking up our cross, it's instructive in Luke's Gospel. Um, it says at the beginning of that uh, chapter 14, verse 25, large crowds were travelling with Jesus. And then Jesus launches, launches into some really challenging verses to the people listening to his teaching. And it's as if he wants to say to the large crowd, you can travel with me and listen to my teaching, experience my miracles and my healings and marvel at them, but I want to tell you there's much more to this road of discipleship. There's a costly road to discipleship if indeed you're going to be one of my disciples. And he warns them, weigh this up before you become a follower of me. And from this passage, Jesus, I think, says four things about what it means to, be, to truly be a disciple. First one is, they love their family less than they love Christ. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and brother, sorry, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. 
Now, the word hate there, um, one of the commentaries I read talked about being a Semitic term for making sure things are lesser than rather than the word hate in terms of that kind of emotion. Um, and certainly we see it as hyperbole. Jesus doesn't want us to hate our family members, but he is talking about priority. And that's one of the things that he draws out right the way through this challenge to discipleship. But when he talks about family, we have to pick up that when he spoke that to his original audience, they would have been absolutely shocked. Because in the Middle East then, as it is now, and other parts of the world, and maybe within your own family, it's family comes first, any and every time. I think in our more fractured family and less extended family kind of context that we live in in our Western culture and our urban, suburban culture, where we don't have three generations living with us um, and we don't have the generations of that, that extended family right or living around us, which really comes, becomes your local tribe, that was very much how it was back then. And as I say, it is in some parts of the world today. For Jesus to say, they don't come first... That was absolutely shocking. See, he starts with that, then he says, and your life as well. well like, so because for them, that was the biggest issue. Um, and he's telling them that if they become Christians, it could very well mean that their family kicks them out of their family, that they'll be ashamed of them, as happens in some cultures today too, where people become Christian because of their parents' faith or belief systems, they say, and I've, I've heard this said, and I know people who have been said this too, you are now dead to us. So there's a stark choice that Jesus is presenting to this big crowd who might have been all very positive to start with. Then when he says, you've got to give up family, they don't come first, I come first. It's like, what? Really? You can't be serious. Even your very life, he says. That's the first thing. Love your family less than you love Christ because it may actually come to that. Now, of course, Jesus also calls us to love those around us, including our family, to love those who persecute us and love and pray for your enemies. So he's not saying don't love people, but he's saying that in the end, the core will be God first, Christ first. Secondly, he says, uh, carry the cross and follow him. Verse 27, whoever, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Again, the image when Jesus says to carry their cross, um, for us, if you're, if you're a Christian and you've kind of got used to the image of a dying Jesus and a resurrected Jesus, the cross, although when you do think about it, and sometimes we reflect more on this on Good Friday, um, the cross was... Uh, the Romans perfecting torture and execution. It was their way to horrify people and make sure you don't do anything to bring about the eye of the Roman Empire to the point where you get executed on a cross. It was the worst form of punishment that humans have devised. So when Jesus says this, I assume that the crowd is puzzled by this, shocked by it again, once they got over the shock of the family analogy that he's using, but then by the cross analogy. What, what does this mean? to pick up your cross and follow him. Well, whatever else it means, you see in the case of Polycarp, it does mean, or could mean, to your death. It certainly means pain, or it could mean pain, personal, emotional, physical pain, 
it, it does mean, certainly, sacrifice. So if you take up your cross, you are giving up your life, which he talks about in the previous verse. If you take up your cross, then, um, in a sense, your life is forfeited. Again, this is a big thing that Jesus is saying. It's a challenge for the picture that he brings to them is one of horror, but notice it says, pick up your cross and follow him. So both Jesus goes to the cross, there is that death, also that resurrection, and other parts of scripture remind us that as we follow Jesus, in our own death we'll also be resurrected. So there's a kind of a, an idea there, a theme there through scripture, a thread that as we die with Christ, we'll also rise with him. And I think um, other um, parts of scripture help us reflect on that. But I guess I want to say that Jesus has gone ahead of us. We are following him. We're not doing this alone. This is not suffering for the sake of it or to earn merit. Um, I don't like the pictures in some parts, like the, particularly the Philippines and some South American countries. At Easter time, people walk the way of the cross, uh, flagellate themselves with whips to suffer, kind of like Jesus suffered. That's not what he's asking us to do in this sense. Um, he's not asking us to to bear physical pain and somehow earn merit or think we're better because of it or have to make up for our sins. He died so he didn't have to uh, have that sacrifice. But he is putting us on notice that to put him first will mean and entail suffering. It will mean, for us, I think, being out of step with the world in which we live, which inevitably will involve suffering. I'm not sure it's helpful when this is said, but I, I think there's something in it. When people say, if you're not suffering at all for being a Christian, are you standing out enough as a Christian? That is, it's what it's challenging is, do we have the courage? Now, there's wisdom in this to work out when to speak, when not to speak, what to say and how to say it. So we don't charge into the world outside of the Christian faith and suddenly start, um, like, I really do not like those street preachers at Rundle Mall. All I hear them yell, when they're there, all I hear them do is yelling at me saying, if you're not a believer, God hates you. It's completely the wrong picture. To me, that's the wrong way to be, and people abuse them back. To me, that's not, I don't see any merit in that, any benefit in that, I should say. Um, but there will be times when, because of our belief in Jesus and what that means for our thinking, our lifestyle, our values, our priorities, our actions, or our saying no to things, or saying to someone, no, I can't do that because my, effectively my morality won't let me. I know a Christian accountants who had to say that to their clients, and guess what? Their clients no longer use them because they go, actually, that's not ethical. You can't do that. And they go, well, okay. You'll lose one business. And the person goes, okay. There's a cost. Now, it may not be, they may not, may not say, I'm doing this because I'm a Christian, but at points that will happen. And depending on your work area, your personal life, your family context, I think you will find points where your faith grates with other people or creates division, not because you want it to, but because Jesus is your first priority and it's to him that you want to give an account. Also might add that, um, because this is in some ways is a heavy sermon, okay, it's the, the cost of discipleship. And Jesus certainly talked about that. Um, there is also great joy in being a Christian. Uh, there is the future hope, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the other thing I need to remind us is we don't 
travel this journey alone. Christ is with us. And I think when you know you've made a tough choice for Jesus, I think in all humility, it's okay to think, God is pleased that I made this tough call. Uh, and I think that's something that you should be, well, you can't use the word proud in a Christian context, can you? But you can be thankful or whatever it is, you've been prepared to, even in a small way, suffer a cost for Jesus. Not to puff yourself up, but to know that you're doing what he calls you to do. So he is with us by his Holy Spirit. And when you face those challenging points where you're thinking, ah, this is one of my tests. As a young person, as a child or a teenager, you might face it with your peers at school. If you're studying at university, you'll face the challenges of your framework of morality and thinking compared to others. If you're in your workplace, you may face challenges in terms of your uh, decisions um, about what you do and don't do, or even your life choices um, as well. But we don't travel that journey alone because Christ is with us, and we don't travel that journey alone because we have each other. And I hope that gathering together like this and our other contexts, our smaller groups and places in which we meet, or even just in chatting to each other, that part of our goal should be to encourage each, other on, encourage each other on what is a tough road sometimes in discipleship, in following Jesus. Some days and some weeks and some seasons are great. Other days are very tough. And it's particularly then, I think, where our Christian sisters and brothers encourage us, our peer group, that helpfully influences us to be strong when we're facing those difficult choices. The third thing that Jesus says is to consider the cost. He gives um, two examples. I might say one, the one about the watchtower, in the, which is probably a, um, a tower in a field or a vineyard with the, which you build to kind of keep an eye on your surrounding agricultural area, separate to your home. Suggestion is that you start building it and then you haven't planned properly and you run out of resources, either money or building, and there's this half-completed tower sitting out in the middle of your field and all your neighbours go, he's not a good planner, is he? Or she's not great at working out what she needs before she starts building. I do remember a story of a person I knew who um, had kept going uh, uh, up in terms of the size of the house that they purchased and they decided to go all out, took out a massive loan and bought this huge place that only had about two rooms that were renovated. Massive place. And then some of their big investments that they'd made went bad. Yeah. They had to live in that house because they'd bought it. Uh, they couldn't renovate it. Two rooms in this massive place. Now, I don't say that to mock the person, um, but, you know, how do you plan? You kind of go, oh, dear, that's ouch. And you're going to be reminded of that as you go. Jesus saying, and there is a sense of people will, he says in here, that people kind of go, gee, that person's not so sensible, are they? They're not wise. The second example is of uh, an army that's twice as big as the army in the, in the town or the, uh, that it is, and the, person, the king goes, they're double the size of us. If we go to war against them, we're in big trouble. I'll make the very early step go straight out to them and ask for terms of peace. Now, asking for terms of peace, the phrase is sue for peace, means you work out a way to not have the war, but you find some way to not have the battle and get destroyed. In those days, people tended to wipe out pretty much the whole town or village that they were against and took, took slaves at best um, and all their goods and everything else. But annoying meant giving some tribute, so an extra tax, um, which meant a proportion of your crops and stuff, or um, 
entering into some kind of long-term servitude where you became slaves or servants of the people who you decided not to fight against. Um, but the thought was, was certainly better than being completely destroyed. It was more palatable than that. And some writers in this passage also suggest that this is something which Jesus is saying, actually, if you think about it, who is the stronger, you or God? And in the previous sections in this chapter and earlier on as well, Jesus told parables about uh, making sure that you enter through the narrow door, uh, making sure you don't get excluded from the banquet because you haven't thought things out properly. And there's almost a sense of think about it rationally, consider the cost, certainly evaluate what the cost is to follow Jesus, and at the same time, think about what the benefit is to follow Jesus. Because Jesus says things like, um, which do you want, life or death? What do you want, the short pleasures of this life or eternity with me? So that's part of evaluating the cost. The second part of it is actually thinking carefully about the reality of following Jesus. Um, when people talk to me about becoming Christian, um, I haven't done this all the time, but sometimes I get the sense I need to say to them, now, it sounds to me like you're prepared to commit your life to Jesus. And they say, yeah, I think I am. I say, that's fantastic. But let me just, before you do that, let me just explain to you what this means. Because I don't want you to go down this path without realising what it means. It means, and this is the passage you go to, giving up everything to follow Jesus. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the, the phrase cheap grace. Cheap grace is accepting all the benefits of forgiveness and salvation with no cost to yourself. Thinking, hey, great, I get forgiven, I get off scot-free, anything I do wrong, God will forgive me because that's what God does if I say I'm sorry. I remember once a student at school saying to me, hey, chap I was a chaplain then. Um, they called me Chapel, Chap Paul, um, Chaplain Paul. Um, he says, hey, Chap Paul, uh, I've worked out this Christian thing now. He's like a year, year, uh, year nine. I'm there. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. What do you reckon? He says, look, I've worked it out. Basically, you can do whatever you like and God has to forgive you. I reckon that's a pretty good deal, he says. I said to him, you may have got some parts of that slightly wrong. <laughs> grace, yes, but not cheap grace. See, grace is free, isn't it? A free gift from God. Nothing required of us except, it's not really except, but the response to grace is discipleship, the road of the cross, the path to discipleship. Give up everything you have and then you can enter the kingdom of God. In Bonhoeffer's case, it meant um, being executed for um, an attempted plot to assassinate Hitler. So Jesus says in verse 33, summarising, uh, in a sense, what it is, the fourth thing, to renounce everything. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. So there's not much left out of that, is there? It's pretty global, it's pretty stark, um, it's pretty strong doesn't leave much out. Uh, and as I've said, if you're a Christian, then you're aware that this pressure already comes on you from the world outside. There are many pressures in life, but one of them is to, to evaluate, I think, as a Christian, 
whether you genuinely have counted the cost. Because I have this image, as Jesus says this last one, he's been going through family, not, not first. Family comes after me, after following Christ. Um, think about the cost and work out what it means. It means carrying a cross. It means following Jesus. It means pain and suffering, or it could mean pain and suffering, and it could mean your life. And then he says, you know, everything. And people are shaking their heads going, seriously, what does this guy mean? What, who does he think he is? Of course, it's all dependent on who Jesus is. But I have this image that as he says all that, as he says these challenging, provocative things to this vast crowd that are there, some start shaking their heads and others start to walk away. And I wonder, as we sit here today, whether some of us are thinking similarly, this actually is too hard. Like, Jesus is asking too much. Or possibly, how can anyone do this like how can we give up everything and follow jesus what does that look like and if i want to do that what does it actually mean well let me um finish with a few thoughts certainly taking up your cross and following jesus is a response to god's grace and mercy it's my belief that as we uh, understand more about god's mercy and as we revel in god's grace through jesus that taking up the cross that is following Christ each day, getting up in the morning and saying, Jesus, how can I follow you today? And it might be just loving your spouse. It might be caring for your neighbour. It might be working hard at work, doing your job properly to honour Christ. All those things are part of this, I think. It's not just kind of clashing with the world. But I think the more we understand God's grace, the more we'll realise that discipleship is just what we want to do. We want to serve Jesus. We want to follow him. We want to obey him. And even though it's hard, and it is, obedience is hard, seeking to be godly is hard, having the wisdom to know what's right is not always easy, seeking his direction by his spirit and reading his word. Um, but that following Jesus becomes something we can joyfully embrace. So while Jesus presents sometimes a stark picture, at the same time, uh, there are other parts of scripture that remind us that it, it is to be a joyful thing to follow him. It's to be something that actually, as he transforms our hearts, we rejoice actually in sacrifice. On my best days, serving Leanne is a joy. Um, I'm not always like that. I mean, 99.9% of the time would be the case. Um, but, you know, uh, on my best days, it's not hard at all. It's just what I love to do. I'll check with her on the way home how that works, whether how, how good I've been going on that one. But, you know, look, it's not an effort. It's not hard to do kind-hearted things or think about her before I think about myself. Sometimes not so much. But it's a joyful thing, isn't it? Because I love Leanne and I want to grow continually in knowing how to love her better and serve her. That's what I want to do. I don't always do it perfectly, apart from that 0.1%. Um, so... In some ways, if I love Jesus, if I know that he is my Lord, my Saviour, that he's uh, poured out his grace on me, and I'm aware of that, and I'm discovering and growing in that, then being a disciple just seems like the right thing to do, the normal thing to do, the joyful thing to do. The second thing is that if you do count the cost, as I've said before, as Jesus said, it's worth it. Lots of things in this world are hard, actually, 
and following Jesus can be hard and you know, coming to church in, on a Sunday or being involved in other church activities or trying to reach your friends with the good news of Jesus, sometimes that takes time and energy and effort and it takes away from other things like binge-watching your favourite series on Netflix or Stan or Disney or Apple TV+. Plus. We've got all four. Um, well, we still at our children's as well. Like, there are other things we could do, aren't there? There are other things we could do that we would be, enjoy doing but actually we make a decision that I want to do this because it's worth it, both for today and for eternity. Um, so as I count the costs, like the king who sued for peace, because he realised peace was better than the alternative of war and destruction, there is a, that's a negative image, but there's also a recognition that there, it's better to give up your life and, than lose your soul, as Jesus says. Let me ask you then, while I've spoken about the words of Jesus and what he's presented to us, only you can work out what that really means for you. It's great for a preacher to give you all the practical application points. This time it's going to be you because each person has a particular challenge, I think, for your personality, your history, your family circumstances, your study or work circumstances, or your personal life circumstances. Each of us will face, I think, unique areas where we can be a disciple for Jesus or we can pull back from that because it's too hard or we lack courage or we just don't want to make the commitment or because we're lazy or because we'll be uh, worried people won't like us, people will reject us, not accept us. I think each of us, some of us can be more courageous in some areas than others. This is why we need each other to encourage each other in this so is there something that stops you from really devoting your life to Jesus? It doesn't matter what age you are, this is always going to be a challenge. I don't want to burden you, but I want you to be honest between yourself and the Lord about things. You know, is it comfort? I think I quite like my comfort as I get older as well. <laughs> um, were you nodding there, Karen? Um, yeah, like, and that's not a bad thing as you're sitting in the, the nice, comfortable seats back there and that, that bloke next to you hasn't fallen asleep yet either. Good on you, Grant. Um, you know, there are, depending on your stage of life, there are some things you'll value more than others and so the challenge is just making sure that, you know, you're prepared to make the sacrifice. I know when we and I talked about this just yesterday as we were walking in the park, um, there are some sacrifices you make um, as a pastor. You know that, you know, Christmas holidays... I love it when people say to me, are you going away for Christmas? And I go, probably not. <laughs> I'll be at church. Or you going away for a long weekend at Easter? Probably not. In fact, not for the whole of my life, my work life, my ministry life, because maybe it might happen if I'm long service leave. Apart from that, I'll be involved in church activities and that kind of thing. Now, you can actually get a bit resentful sometimes of that kind of thing. I don't have the breaks that other people have. You need to be careful to work against that because Satan loves you to feel resentful about the sacrifice that you'll make. But it is worth it whatever it is that god is trying to teach you in this particular sermon it is worth it whether it's comfort money family a sin you're involved and you don't want to give up a desire for other things that god is challenging you on so can i encourage you then to finish ask for god's strength these things aren't easy but that's the point that's why jesus did warn us for the vast swathe of Christians in the world who are following him, following Jesus involves significant uh, physical sacrifice. 
Um, for us, it might mean some parts of our lives are different than what our neighbours are. For us, it might mean some inconvenience, but others, it's going to mean harder things. But ask for God's strength um, and be encouraged that following Jesus is both worth it and when you do do it, when you make those tough choices for him, I believe you can rightly know God's pleasure. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you have presented to us uh, some very stark challenges in your word as you spoke to the large crowd that was following you. And I guess some turned away from you then and no longer followed you. Lord, if we are struggling with some area that you're laying upon our heart, we pray that you would continue to give us the strength to give that up to you, to know that the sacrifice is worth it, to know that to um, go on the path of daily discipleship, taking up our cross, uh, dealing with the struggles or difficulties that brings us, the sacrifice of money or time or energy or priorities, or the shape of our lives indeed, that all those things, Lord, are worth it. Help us to grow into joyful discipleship, that the more we see your love and your grace and your mercy, the more we see the way you work through us as we give up our lives for you and as it affects those around us and points them to you. As Lord, we do that, we pray we'd see in that the great work of your Holy Spirit and rejoice that we are your children that we are your disciples. Strengthen us in this, we pray, each day, in your name. Amen.